Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 88 as we consider when darkness seems to be the last word. As you find your place in your Bible or on your device, I'd encourage you to keep it open. We'll be coming back to it again and again this morning. Some introductory uh, matters before we begin. The, the first is there's a word, Selah, in your text that you'll find this morning. That's a transliteration from the Hebrew word Selah, and the reason it's transliterated into the English is because we really don't know what it means. But scholars suggest that maybe the best way to understand Selah is as some sort of musical interlude. So when we get to Selah, and it appears twice in the text, think of Josh, uh, you know, jamming out on the guitar, uh, or Jacques having a drum solo, right? That's kind of the idea with Selah. There are, other, there are other musical notes in the psalm. So you'll notice in the heading it says, to the choir master. And then it says, according to, and according to is telling you the tune or the arrangements. It's according to this particular musical arrangement. And the reason that you'll see all these musical notes in the introduction is because psalms are songs that can be prayed or prayers that can be sung. Now, you also notice that Psalm 88 is the fifth of five sons of Korah psalms, and this particular psalm is by Haman the Ezraite. And it's pronounced Haman like the Bahaman greeting, right? Haman, uh, not like the overly muscular action figure He-Man, okay? So it's Haman the Ezraite. And Psalm 88 is a warning label. Warning labels are often overlooked. Do you remember the last time you read a warning label? In 1965, there was an act of Congress that declared that you needed to put a warning label on every, what, cigarette pack, right? And do you remember how the, well, you probably don't, but it's 1965, but uh, the initial warning label was what? Cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health. And not many people noticed that warning label. So over time, Congress and the FDA and different administrative groups decided to ramp up those warning. They tried warning label after warning label. Finally, in 2009, they got to the point where you needed to have 50% of the box of cigarettes covered by graphic warning labels. And still, people don't really notice those warning labels. Warning labels often go overlooked and Psalm 88 often goes overlooked. It's been there the whole time, wedged between Psalm 87 and Psalm 89, but it's frequently overlooked, especially here in America. You see, 245 years ago, on this day, the signers of the Declaration of Independence declared that all men are created equal, and it took us a little while to get there. Uh, but all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which include what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that triad, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, has shaped our culture. It shaped our country. And when that's your worldview, Psalm 88, will make you a little uncomfortable. 
You see, Psalm 88 takes that triad of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and it inverts it. It turns it on its, on its head. Psalm 88 is about death, bondage, and abandonment. And so Psalm 88 makes us uncomfortable, and it's often overlooked. But the Westminster divines caught it. In the 1640s, as they gathered a group of English and Scottish pastors and scholars from all over to Westminster Abbey to write, this is what we believe for the Church of England, they, they wrote uh, the chapter on the, the assurance of faith that we read from this morning. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken and diminished. Let me read that again. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken and diminished. And then the Westminster Confession of Faith gives four ways that that can happen. And the fourth one is as by God withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. And that's what Psalm 88 is about. It's about the darkness that we may encounter when God withdraws the light of his countenance. And it's good to know that that might happen. It's good to know that there may be seasons in your life where the darkness is so thick and the troubles are so painful and the isolation is so overwhelming that it feels like you're drowning, like you can't breathe. And as you gasp for air, as you gasp for breath, you cry out to God and he doesn't answer. Your desperation in the darkness is met by divine silence. Have you been there? Maybe you've felt this darkness in the pandemic or through personal loss or in the death of a loved one. Maybe you've experienced it through racial injustice or politics, the bipolarization, the election. Maybe you've experienced through depression. Maybe you've been betrayed by someone you trust or hurt by someone you love. Maybe you've been attacked in your own home. Have you experienced times where darkness seems to be the last word? I think God includes Psalm 88 in the Psalter to teach us how to pray when those seasons come. To teach us how to pray when God withdraws the light of his countenance and allows even those of us who fear him to walk in darkness. Faith faces many crises, but how does faith face divine silence? How does faith face divine silence in the darkness? Here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. Even in the depths of darkness, we are kept from utter despair because we are not alone. Let me say that again. Even in the depths of darkness, we are kept from utter despair because we are not alone. We'll look at this passage this morning under four headings. 
It is, after all, the 4th of July, right? Under four headings, first we'll consider, in verses 3 through 9, the darkness of our troubles. The darkness of our troubles. Then in verses 1 and 2, 9 and 12, we'll consider the desperation of our cry. The desperation of our cry. Then in verses 10 through 12, we'll consider the distress of our argument. The distress of our argument. And then in verses 14 through 18, we'll consider, we'll consider the devastation of our abandonment. The devastation of our abandonment. Let's look together at Psalm 88. <clears throat> a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalat Lenet, a maskal of Haman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you, Selah? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning as we come into your presence and we rejoice in the light of your word and your goodness to us, we know that there have been seasons in our lives, and maybe some in, in this sanctuary now or here, in darkness in their own lives. And we've felt that darkness, and it's been thick. And Father, I pray that there would be a floor to the bottomless pit of that despair this morning. 
I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus in him only. Amen. So let's consider, first of all, this morning, the darkness of our troubles in verses 3 through 9. Now, scholars consider Psalm 88 to be the bleakest, the darkest, the hardest of all the psalms. And we see why here in verses 3 through 9. In this complaint to God, in this section, the psalmist describes his misery. And he starts in verse 3. Look at verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles. His troubles are so overwhelming that he feels like he's on the edge of death. And so this description is full of metaphors and similes around death. Look at verse 3. Keep reading. My life draws near to Sheol. That's the Hebrew picture of the underworld. Verses 4 and 6. He's going down in the depths of the pit, in regions dark and deep. In verse 5, he's among the dead. He's like the slain that lie in the grave. He's been forgotten by God there in verse 5. Like those whom you remember no more, he's cut off from God's hand. And part of his heartache is that his friends have abandoned him. Look at verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. And that word horror could be abomination. It's saying that those who know him are now disgusted by him. He's experiencing deep isolation and loneliness. And he's also experiencing God's wrath. Look at verse 7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. His soul is full of troubles. He's completely overwhelmed. How would you describe feeling overwhelmed? What images would you use? Drowning? Maybe being trapped? Would you feel overwhelmed if you were buried alive? A bottomless pit? Total darkness? The psalmist uses all five of these images. Drowning? Look at verse 7. You overwhelm me with all your waves. Trapped? Look at verse 8. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. Buried alive? Look at verse 5. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Bottomless pit? Look at verse 6. In the depths of the pit. Immersed in total darkness? Verse 6. In regions dark and deep. He's completely overwhelmed. Can you sense his darkness? Can you feel his troubles? Do you know his pain? That's his misery in itemized detail. Why does Haman do this? Does he think that God doesn't know this information, that God's unaware of the facts? You should always assume that biblical writers are at least as brilliant as you are. Why does Haman do this? What is he assuming? He's assuming that his misery 
will arouse God's mercy. He's assuming that God is touched by the trouble of his people. He's assuming something of the character of his God. Now, we may think this sounds a lot like whining. After all, the technical name of this kind of a section and this kind of psalm is a complaint. He's complaining. Aren't we supposed to have hearts of gratitude? Aren't we supposed to be filled with thanks? Absolutely. But you see, gratitude, true gratitude, comes from coming and taking all of the depth of our darkness to God. It doesn't gloss over the hard parts of life. It takes those hard parts to God, which is exactly what the psalmist is doing. And we may think that the itemization of misery isn't very sophisticated. It's not upbeat or American. It's not about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if we want to think that way, we'll need to keep our sophisticated American religion and jettison biblical Christianity because the God of the Bible is a God who is moved by the miseries of his people. Do you ever describe your misery to God in detail? Do you itemize it? Or do we think that's not sophisticated? That's not American. The psalmist is showing us how to take the darkness of our troubles to God. The darkness of our troubles before the throne of grace. Now, this section is one of three sections. It's three cycles, and each of these three sections or cycles begin with a cry to God followed by an extended complaint. The first section is verses 1 through 9. The second section is verses 9 through 12, and the final section is verses 13 to 18. And you hear the echoes of the darkness of our trouble throughout the psalm, throughout all three cycles. Grave used in verse 5, is repeated in verse 11. Those who you remember no more in verse 5 becomes the land of forgetfulness in verse 12. Horrors in verse 8 becomes terrors in verse 15. Wrath is repeated in 7 and 16. Shun is repeated in 8 and 18. And dead or death appears in all three sections of the psalm, verse 5, verse 10, and verse 15. You see, the feeling of death is inescapable. And darker darkness appears in all three sections. In verse 6, 12, and 18, you see death and darkness are everywhere. They pervade the psalmist's experience, and they pervade the psalm. In fact, darkness is the very last word of the psalm, both in English and in Hebrew. Psalm 88 ends in darkness. It is darkness all day long. That's the darkness of our troubles. Then in verses 1 and 2, verse 9 and verse 13, we see the desperation of our cry. Each of the three sections, each of the three cycles, begin by addressing God. And there are many ways that God is addressed in the Psalms. 
But the nature of these addresses have a certain desperation. Look at verse 1. I cry out day and night before you. Verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. Verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. You see, the psalmist, Haman, in his prayer, in this psalm, is crying out to God. And he uses four different Hebrew words for cry or call, as if to indicate that he's tried everything, that he's exhausted all possible approaches. He's cried out in all these different ways, and you can hear his desperation. And it's not just that he's cried out in all these different ways. He's also cried out at all these different times. Did you notice the time vocabulary? Verse 1, day and night. Verse 9, every day or all day. Verse 13, in the morning. You see, he's crying out to God in every possible way, at every possible time. And you can hear the desperation Picture a sea of darkness and despair, right? Can you picture the waves? Can you hear the sound? It's darkness and despair all around. And the psalmist's cries rise to the surface and break through like a drowning man gasping for air. Again and again he cries out, and there's no answer only silence. He's tried everything, and the result is still darkness. There's no light breaking through. Have you been there? Are you there now? If you've been there, then you know that in the deepest despair, words can be hard to come by. I remember Long ago, in one of my own seasons of darkness, in the midst of a tragedy, being alone in my house and being in the kitchen and falling to the floor, weeping uncontrollably and searching for words. And the words didn't come. And finally, I found the words of the sinner's prayer. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I just prayed them over and over and over again. Because sometimes in the deepest darkness, when the desperation is unbearable, words can be hard to come by. And so God takes the ancient words from 3,000 years ago, from the psalmist Haman, and he puts them in this book. He puts them in his Psalter. And he says, when words are hard to come by, here, use mine. He says, when the desperation is overwhelming, open Psalm 88 and begin to read. God gives you his words. Now, Psalm 88 would be classified as a lament, and 60 of the 150 psalms are laments. Can I get that first slide, Andre? And laments have a certain structure, 
They have a certain structure. They have five parts. There's an address to God. Then there's a complaint. Then there's a plea to God for help. And there's a section of trust and a section of declarative praise. And the idea here is that in the psalmist's experience, right, as he's praying through the address and the complaint, he cries out to God and the plea to God for help, and then God shows up. God meets him in the darkness. And that experience is transformative. And so he turns to God in trust. And then there's a section of declarative praise, right? But Psalm 88 breaks this structure. And it's the only lament of the 60 laments that breaks this structure. You see in Psalm 88, can I get that next slide? There's no turn to trust and declarative praise. It goes from address to complaint, to address to complaint, to address to complaint. He's coming to God in three different cycles, in three different sections. He's crying out to God in every possible way, at every possible time. And by the time he writes these words down, God still hasn't broken through. And I think that that's good to know, that there can be long seasons of darkness where faith faces divine silence. Thanks, Andre. So that the darkness of our troubles, the desperation of our cry, and then in verses 10 through 12, we have the distress of our argument. Verses 10 through 12, there's a change in form because now the psalmist is coming at God with questions. And this is an intensification of his desperation. He's distressed, and his basic argument is this. If my distress gets me and I die... There will be one less person to declare your steadfast love. There will be one less person to make known your wonders. There will be one less person to praise you. And to clarify, he's arguing that there will be one less person to praise God here on earth. You see, Old Testament believers had hope in life after death. See Psalm 16 or 49 or 73. Haman's not saying he'll cease to exist. He knows he'll be praising God in the new heavens and the new earth. His argument is, if my distress gets me and I die, there will be one less witness on the earth. There will be one less person to testify to your wonders to the watching world. There will be one less person to praise you as a testimony before unbelievers. And that might sound like crass manipulation, but it's desperate logic. What is he assuming about life? He's assuming that his whole reason for existence is to glorify God. His whole reason for his existence is to declare God's goodness to the world. And that's a faithful way of looking at life. You see, life's not ultimately about success or family or achievement or morality. Our sole reason for existence is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Do you ever bring an argument like that to God? We should use arguments in prayer because they can be helpful. They can be helpful to show whether our reasons are viable. You see, the Psalms assume that prayer is not merely highly emotional, 
but also intensely rational. The distress of our argument. And then fourthly, we see the devastation of our abandonment. Verses 14 through 18. Verses 14 through 18 revisit some of our previous language around darkness and despair. Verse 15 has terrors and death. Verse 16 has wrath. In verse 17, Haman's overwhelmed by water. In verse 18, he's shunned. And the last word of the psalm is darkness. But in verse 14, there's a new theme. And that new theme intensifies and deepens the darkness. And that new theme is abandonment or rejection by God. Look at verse 14. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? You see, there are seasons of our life where God seems to be absent, where he doesn't seem to be there. And part of the value of this psalm is the realism that it adds to our faith. We're so used to hearing glowy testimonies from bouncy, bubbly believers about various things, but we don't hear too many people telling us about situations like this unless we have our nose stuck in the Bible. You see, sometimes a little talk with Jesus does not make it all right. You can have a number of talks with Jesus and have no answer at all. But there's also a sign of faith here. Did you notice why the psalmist is so devastated? It's because God's hiding his face. You see, a believer must know that God is with him and God is for him. That's the one thing a believer can't do without. We must know that God is with us and for us. And if we don't have that, it disturbs us to no end. And that is a sign that there's true grace in your life. It's a sign that there's true grace in your life because reprobates don't get upset at the absence of God. Do you see the assurance that ought to ooze out of you in this devastation? And that abandonment is heightened when we realize that not only is God hiding his face, but God is actually causing his pain. God is actually causing his pain. Did you catch that? It's throughout the psalm. Look at verse 6. Haman says, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Verse 15, I suffer your terrors. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. You see, God is causing his pain. And this is an admission of sovereignty. You see, for the psalmist, God is both the problem and the solution. And while this may be an uncomfortable truth, may I suggest 
that you wouldn't want it any other way? You see, God's either sovereign or He's not. And if He is, then God puts a limit on your pain. He puts a limit on your suffering. Your suffering has boundaries, and your troubles will ultimately and finally have meaning. But if He's not, then anything can happen. Then life is arbitrary and random, and your troubles are ultimately meaningless. Charles Spurgeon, an English Baptist preacher in the 1800s, once said this, It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by His hand, that my trials were never measured out by Him, nor sent to me by His arrangement of their weight and quantity. And the psalmist acknowledges that his troubles are from the hand of God. And in this acknowledgement, there is a glimmer of hope. You see, this is the bleakest of all the psalms. It's a lament where there's no turn to trust and declarative praise. It's just three cycles of complaint. It's desperation and despair and abandonment. But did you notice how he addresses God? What's the title that he uses in verse 1? God of my salvation. But by the end of this psalm, there has been no salvation. By the end of this psalm, there's been no deliverance. And so as Haman writes this title of God, God of my salvation, it's expectant and it's anticipatory. It's a sign of faith. And did you notice the name he uses of God? It's O Lord in all capital letters. In Hebrew, that's the name Yahweh. And from Exodus chapter 3, we know that Yahweh means he will be, and in the context of he will be with us. You see, Yahweh is the name of God that is a scrunched up and condensed promise that he will be with his people. And he uses this name of God, not, in ju not just in verse 1, but every time he cries out. Verse 9, verse 13, verse 14. O Yahweh, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? You see, even as he's crying out with the utter devastation of his abandonment, he's using the name Yahweh, the name where God promises that he will be with his people. It's a sign of faith. And Psalm 88 ends in darkness. It's literally the last word of the psalm. There's no light breaking through. There's no change in Haman's circumstances. Yahweh has been rejecting him in verse 14, and he's completely devastated. But in verses 15 through 18, he's still talking to Yahweh. Yahweh has been hiding his face, and the psalmist feels abandoned, but he keeps speaking to Yahweh because there's nowhere else to go. Is that not walking by faith? Maybe in the deepest darkness, you'll have the clearest proof 
that you're a child of Yahweh. You keep going back. Is that not faithfulness? Is that not first commandment obedience? You see, the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 18 that we read this morning says true believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken and diminished. But did you read the turn? It turns at yet. Yet, they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and that life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty. The Westminster divines are saying, yet they never lose faith. Even if their assurance is shaken and diminished, they never lose faith. And in due time, their assurance may be revived by the Spirit. And in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. You see, true believers keep going back to Yahweh. And that simple act of faithfulness keeps them from utter despair. Robert Balmer was a congregational minister in the 1800s in England, and he was a professor of systematic theology. And at age 10, his father died to go home and be with the Lord. And young Robert that night brought the books in for family worship, which was something his dad had done day after day. And that act brought on deep sorrow in the family. And young Robert, at age 10, said, God, who has taken our father, will be a father to us. He will hear our prayers. We must not go to bed tonight without worshiping him. You see, there's no one else to to worship, we must come back to this God. Is that not faithfulness? Is that not first commandment obedience? We keep coming back. And brothers and sisters, God himself knows something of this darkness. Was it not the second person of the Trinity who cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus ultimately faced the darkness. He was shunned by his friends, verses 8 and 18. Jesus was cut off from the presence of Yahweh, verse 5. He was utterly abandoned, verse 14. He was forgotten, verse 5. He faced the full wrath of God, verses 7 and 16. And he was laid in the grave, verse 5. And do you know why? Christian, Jesus faced the darkness so that darkness would never be the last word for you. You see, even in the deepest darkness, when it feels like we're drowning, when it feels like we're falling in the bottomless pit, when it feels like we're buried alive, darkness will never be the last word for us. Light will come. Dawn will break a new day will begin. Because Jesus faced the darkness once and for all, because of his real separation from the presence of God, nothing will finally separate us from the love of God in Christ. For I am sure 
that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, as one scholar says, to read Psalm 88 may well be cathartic, but it is more. It is also faithful and instructive. To read Psalm 88 reminds us that even when we stand in utter darkness, we do not stand alone. We stand with the psalmist of old. We stand with Christ on the cross. To cry into the darkness, O Lord my God, is an act of solidarity with the communion of saints and an act of faith and hope, indeed an affirmation of the hope of the resurrection. You see, Christian, for you, darkness will never be the last word because Jesus sings this song on the cross and darkness and death are the last word for him before God raises him from the grave to everlasting life. And because he took that path before you, that's the certain hope that you have, even in seasons of darkness. Even in the depths of darkness, we are kept from utter despair because we are not alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that when darkness comes, the assurance of our salvation, though diminished, though shaken, will never finally pass away, and that you will support us from utter despair because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Darkness will never be the last word. I pray for those who are struggling with darkness, despair, desperation, depression now. I pray that you would be the floor to their bottomless pit. I ask now that you would aim our hearts towards this communion meal. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.